Chapter 7 Part 2 Of Vandover and the Brute This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Vandover and the Brute by Frank Norris Chapter 7 Part 2 Next morning he took his bath. Vandover enjoyed his bath, and usually spent two or three hours over it. When the water was very warm, he got into it with his novel on a rack in front of him, and a box of chocolates conveniently near. Here he stayed for over an hour, eating and reading, and occasionally smoking a cigarette, until at length the enervating heat of the steam gradually overcame him, and he dropped off to sleep. On this particular morning, between nine and ten, Geary called, and, as was his custom, came right up to Vandover's room. Mr. Corkle, lying on the wolfskin in the bay window, jumped up with a gruff bark, but, recognising him, came up wiggling his short tail. Geary saw Vandover's clothes thrown about the floor, in the closed door of the bathroom. Hey, Van, he called. It's Charlie Geary. Are you taking a bath? Hello, what? Who is it? Came from behind the door. Oh, is that you, Charlie? Hello, how are you? Yes, I'm taking a bath. I must have been asleep. Wait a minute, I'll be out. No, I can't stop, answered Geary. I've got an appointment downtown. I overslept myself. I had to go without my breakfast. It makes me feel all broke up. Now I'll get something at the gill room about eleven. A steak, I guess. But that isn't what I came to say. Ida Wade has killed herself. Isn't it fearful? I thought I'd drop in on my way downtown and speak to you about it. It's dreadful. It's all in the morning papers. She must have been out of her head. What is it? What has she done? came back Vandover's voice. Papers! I haven't seen! What has she done? Tell me! What has she done? Why, she committed suicide last night by taking laudanum, answered Geary, and nobody knows why. She didn't leave any message or letter or anything of the kind. It's a fearful thing to happen so suddenly, but it seems she has been very despondent and broke up about something or other for a week or two. They found her in her room last night, about ten o'clock, lying across a table, with only her wrapper on. She was unconscious then, and between one and two she died. She was unconscious all the time. Well, I can't stop any longer, Van. I have an appointment downtown. I was just going past the house, and I thought I would run up and speak to you about Ida. I'll see you again pretty soon, and we'll talk this over. Mr. Corkle politely attended Geary to the head of the stairs then went back to Vandover's room, and after blowing under the crack of the bathroom door to see if his master was still there, returned to the wolfskin and sat down on his short tail and yawned. He was impatient to see Vandover, and thought he stayed in his bath an unnecessarily long time. He went up to the door again and listened. It was very still inside. He could not hear the slightest sound, and he wondered again what could keep Vandover in there so long. He had too much self-respect to whine. So he went back to the wolfskin and curled up in the sun. 
but did not go to sleep. By and by, after a very long time, the bathroom door swung open and Vandover came out. He had not dried himself, but was naked and wet. He went directly to the table in the centre of the room and picked up the morning paper, looking for the article of which Geary had spoken. At first he could not find it, and then it suddenly jumped into prominence from out the grey blur of the print on the inside page beside an advertisement of a charity concert for the benefit of a home for incurable children. There was a picture of Ida taken from a photograph like one that she had given him, and which even then was thrust between the frame and glass of his mirror. He read the article through. It sketched her life and character, and the circumstances of her death, with the relentless terseness of the writer cramped for space. According to this view, the causes of her death were unknown. It had been remarked that she had, of late, been despondent and in ill health. Vandover threw the paper down and straightened up, naked and dripping, putting both hands to his head. In a low voice, under his breath, he said, What have I done? What have I done now? Like a sudden unrolling of a great scroll, he saw his responsibility for her death, and for the ruin of that something in her which was more than life. What would become of her now? And what would become of him? For a single brief instant, he tried to persuade himself that Ida had consented after all, but he knew that this was not so. She had consented, but he had forced her consent. He was none the less guilty. And then, in that dreadful moment, when he saw things in their true light, all the screens of conventionality and sophistry torn away, the words the young hate spoken came back to him. No matter if she had consented, it was his duty to have protected her, even against herself. He walked the floor with great strides, steaming with the warm water, shaking his head with his hands and crying out, Oh, this is fearful, fearful, what have I done now? I have killed her, yes, and worse. He could think of nothing worse that could have happened to him. What a weight of responsibility to carry. He, who hated responsibility of any kind, who had always tried to escape from anything that was even irksome, who loved his ease, his comfort, his peace of mind. At every moment now he saw the different consequences of what he had done. Now it was that his life was ruined, and all through its course this crime would hang like a millstone about his neck. There could be no more enjoyment of anything for him all the little pleasures and little self-indulgences which till now had delighted him, were spoiled and rendered impossible. The rest of his life would have to be one long penitence. Any pleasure he might take would only make his crime seem more abominable. Now it was a furious revolt against his mistake that had led him to such a fearful misunderstanding of Eda, a silent, impotent rage against himself and against the brute in him that he had permitted to drag him to this thing. Now it was a wave of immense pity for the dead girl that overcame him, and he saw himself as another person, destroying what she most cherished for the sake of gratifying an unclean passion. Now it was a terror for himself. What would they do to him? His part in the affair was sure to be found out. He tried to think what the punishment for such crime would be, 
but would he not be considered a murderer as well? Could he not hang for this? His imagination was never more active, his fear never more keen. At once a thousand plans of concealment or escape were tossed up in his mind. But worse than all was the thought of that punishment from which there was absolutely no escape, and that strange other place where his crime would assume right proportions and receive right judgment, no matter how it was palliated or evaded here. Then for an instant it was as if a gulf without bottom had opened under him, and he had to fight himself back from its edge for sheer self-preservation. To look too long in that direction was simple insanity beyond any doubt. And all this time he threw himself to and fro in his room, his long white arms agitated and shaking, his wet and shining hair streaming far over his face, and the sparse long fell upon his legs and ankles, all straight and trickling with moisture. At times an immense, unreasoning terror would come upon him all of a sudden, horrible, crushing, so that he rolled upon the bed groaning and sobbing, digging his nails into his scalp, shutting his teeth against the desire to scream out, writhing in the throes of terrible mental agony. That day and the next were fearful. To Vandover, everything in his world was changed. All that had happened before the morning of Geary's visit appeared to him to have occurred in another phase of his life, years and years ago. He lay awake all night long, listening to the creaking of the house, and the drip of the water faucets. He turned from his food with repugnance, told his father that he was sick, and kept indoors as much as he could, reading all the papers to see if he had been found out. To his great surprise and relief, a theory gained ground that Ida was subject to spells of ill health, to long fits of despondency, and that her suicide had occurred during one of these. If Ida's family knew anything of the truth, it was apparent that they were doing their best to cover up their disgrace. Vandover was too thoroughly terrified for his own safety to feel humiliated at this possible explanation for security. There was as yet not even a guess that implicated him. He thought that he was bearing up under the strain well enough, but on the evening of the second day, as he was pretending to eat his supper, his father sent a servant out and, turning to him, said kindly, what is it, Van? Aren't you well nowadays? Not very, sir, answered Vandover. My throat is troubling me again. You look deathly pale, returned his father. Your eyes are sunken, and you don't eat. Yes, I know, said Vandover. I'm not feeling well at all. I think I'll go to bed early tonight. I don't know, he continued, after a pause feeling a desire to escape from his father's observation. I don't know, but what I'll go up now. Will you tell the cook to feed Mr. Corkle for me? His father looked at him as he pushed back from the table. What's the matter, Van? he said. Is there anything wrong? Oh, I'll be all right in the morning, he replied nervously. I feel a little under the weather just now. Don't you think you had better tell me what the trouble is? said his father, kindly. There isn't any trouble, sir, insisted Vandover. I just feel a little under the weather. But as he was starting to undress in his room, 
a sudden impulse took possession of him, an overwhelming childish desire to tell his father all about it. It was beginning to be more than he was able to bear alone. He did not allow himself to stop and reason with his impulse, but slipped on his vest again and went downstairs. He found his father in the smoking room, sitting unoccupied in the huge leather chair before the fireplace. As Vandover came in, the old gentleman rose and, without a word, as if he had been expecting him, went to the door and shut and locked it. He came back and stood before the fireplace watching Vandover as he approached and took the chair he had just vacated. Vandover told him of the affair in two or three phrases, without choosing his words, repeating the same expressions over and over again, moved only with a desire to have it over and done with. It was like a burst of thunder. The worst his father had feared was not as bad as this. He had expected some rather serious boyish trouble, but this was the crime of a man. Still watching his son, he put out his hand, groping for the edge of the mantelpiece, and took hold of it with a firm grasp. For a moment he said nothing, then, And, and you say you seduced her? Without looking up, Vandover answered, Yes, sir. And then he added, It is horrible. When I think of it, I sometimes feel as though I should go off my head. I... But the old gentleman interrupted him, putting out his hand. Don't, he said quickly. Don't say anything now. Please. They were both silent for a long time. Vandover gazing stupidly at a little blue and red vase on the table, wondering how his father would take the news, what next he would say. The old gentleman drawing his breath short, occasionally clearing his throat, his eyes wandering vaguely about the walls of the room, his fingers dancing upon the edge of the mantelpiece. Then at last he put his hand to his neck as though loosening his collar and said, looking away from Vandover, Won't you... Won't you please go out? Go away for a little while. Leave me alone for a little while. When Vandover closed the door, he shut the edge of a rug between it and the sill. As he reopened it to push the rug out of the way, he saw his father sink into the chair, and, resting his arm upon the table, bow his head upon it. He did not see his father again that night, and at breakfast next morning not a word was exchanged between them. But his father did not go downtown to his office that forenoon, as was his custom. Vandover went up to his room immediately after breakfast, and sat down before the window that overlooked the little garden in the rear of the house. He was utterly miserable. His nerves were gone. And at times he would feel again a touch of that hysterical, unreasoning terror that had come upon him so suddenly the other morning. Now there was a new trouble, the blow he had given his father. He could see that the old gentleman was crushed under it, and that he had never imagined that his son could have been so base as this. Vandover wondered what he was going to do. It would seem as if he had destroyed all of his father's affection for him, and he trembled, lest the old gentleman should cast him off, everything. 
Even if his father did not disown him, he did not see how they could ever be the same. They might go on living together in the same house, but as far apart from each other as strangers. This, however, did not seem natural. It was much more likely that his father would send him away, anywhere out of his sight, forwarding, perhaps through his lawyer or agents, enough money to keep him alive. The more Vandover thought of this, the more he became convinced that such would be his father's decision. The old gentleman had spent the night over it, time enough to make up his mind, and the fact that he had neither spoken to him nor looked at him that morning was only an indication of what Vandover was to expect. He fancied he knew his father well enough to foresee how this decision would be carried out, not with any imprecations or bursts of rage, but calmly, sadly, inevitably. Toward noon, his father came into the room, and Vandover turned to face him, and to hear what he had to say as best he could. He knew he should not break down under it, for he felt as though his misery had reached its limit, and that nothing could touch or affect him much now. His father had a decanter of port in one hand and a glass in the other. He filled the glass and held it toward Vandover, saying gently, I think you had better take some of this. You've hardly eaten anything in three days. Do you feel pretty bad, Van? Vandover put the glass down and got upon his feet. All at once, a great sob shook him. Oh, Governor! he cried. It was as if it had been a mother or a dear sister. The prodigal son put his arms about his father's neck for the first time since he had been a little boy, and clung to him and wept as though his heart were breaking. The End of Chapter 7, Part 2